Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast. Episode number 31, Jeffrey Bellin, The Silence Penalty. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang, from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. Our goal is to bring a virtual workshop to you every week throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Jeff Bellin. Jeff is the University Professor of Teaching Excellence at William & Mary Law School. He teaches evidence, criminal law, and criminal procedure, and his research covers a wide array of topics in those fields, including some prominent work on hearsay and a recent piece on judicial notice. Our podcast today features Jeff's new article, The Silence Penalty, which is forthcoming in the Iowa Law Review. The article discusses the results of an extensive mock trial simulation that was aimed at determining what penalty criminal defendants suffer when they either decline to testify or testify and then have their criminal record introduced for impeachment purposes. Jeff then uses these findings to shed light on a number of scholarly and practical debates. For example, his results potentially explain a puzzle over conviction rates found in a National Center for State Courts study, and they also suggest trial strategies for defendants and paths for evidentiary reform. Jeff, welcome to Excited Utterance. Very happy to have you on the show. Thanks. Excited to be here. Your article addresses two extra-legal, for lack of a better term, penalties that are faced by criminal defendants with prior convictions. So one is the silence penalty, and the other is the prior conviction penalty. Can you give us a brief introduction to the two penalties and the context in which they occur? Yeah, one of the key things about the American criminal trial that makes it unique is that we tie the admissibility of prior convictions for the most part to whether the defendant testifies. So if the defendant does not testify, typically none of the defendant's prior convictions, their criminal record will be admissible. If the defendant does testify, however, then the evidence rules allow the prosecutor to introduce certain of the defendant's uh, prior convictions. So that creates this dichotomy where the defendant, if they have a prior record, can sit silently and then the jury will not hear about the record, or the defendant can elect to testify, in which case the jury will often hear about the record because the prosecutor will use it as impeachment. And so that's what I'm referring to in the article as the two penalties. The first one, the penalty that arises if the jury is told about the defendant's prior convictions, that's the what you call the prior conviction penalty. And the alternative is you can remain silent and there you suffer what I call the silence penalty, which is that the jury will typically notice that you, despite being accused of a serious crime, have not testified that you're innocent. What have the prior empirical studies shown about these two phenomena? So the instructions that the juries receive suggest that they should not make adverse inferences about silence and that they should only use the prior convictions for impeachment purposes. Do they really follow those instructions at all? Right. So there's a lot of suspicion that the juries are not willing or able to follow these instructions. 
So there's been a fair number of social science experiments related primarily to the prior conviction penalty, where they'll usually kind of sociologists, criminologists, not necessarily uh, law professors, will evaluate the fact pattern that tells the jury about the defendant's prior convictions, and then a fact pattern that doesn't tell the jury about the defendant's prior convictions. They'll include in the study the instruction that will say to the mock jurors, you are not to consider the conviction except as impeachment. So you're not to use it as evidence that the defendant is a criminal by propensity, just to suggest that they're less likely to be truthful in their testimony. This kind of empirical work shows that the mock jurors don't follow the instruction very closely. They actually uh, seem to be using the prior conviction when they hear about it as evidence that the defendant is criminal, or especially if the prior conviction is related to the thing that the defendant is currently charged for. There's less empirical work on what jurors do with silence, but the empirical work that has been done there as well in these kind of mock juror experiments also suggests that mock jurors will hold it against defendants who do not testify. And then again, there's even less empirical work on kind of actual trials, and that's something that I get to in the article as well. The first half of your article talks about a new mock juror study that you did focusing on both of these penalties. First question, what motivated you to do this study, and what were you hoping to learn from it? Yeah, great question, uh, because I, I really had no interest in doing this study. That wasn't my goal. What I wanted to do was to canvas the empirical literature that existed, because there was all this social science literature, and kind of grab that and use that to try to, to frame the issue. And then I wanted to talk about the National Center for State Courts data that I think we'll get to later, which looks at real trials, but is clouded by the many variables. And so what I found, like I said, was that there were many studies uh, in the social sciences about what if you tell the mock jurors that the defendant has a prior conviction? Do they use it the proper way that the law suggests they should? And then there were a couple studies that talked about what if the defendant doesn't testify? Uh, what happens then? And so I had that as the framing, but I was frustrated because in all these studies, there wasn't one that reproduced the actual dilemma the defendants face, which is how do the two penalties compare? So specifically, which is worse or what happens if the jury is looking at either a silent defendant or a defendant with prior convictions, how do those two scenarios compare to each other? And all the studies that I found would just look at each in isolation and not talk about the weight of the relative penalties. And so as I was doing this, the good academic in me said, well, these studies are doable. As you read the studies, you notice that they're not particularly sophisticated. And so the, like I said, the good academic, which is hopefully a large part of my psyche, said, you can do this and we need to do a study or someone needs to do a study that compares the penalty. That's what I ended up doing, figuring out how to do a study and then doing the one that I was looking for myself and trying to find out how do the two penalties compare? What happens if a defendant has to choose between a prior conviction being revealed or remaining silent? Which of those is the bigger penalty? Tell us about how you did this study. What was the basic setup and how did you get your subjects? The reason that I was able to do this is because the science of this has progressed such that you can do these through the internet now. And so it used to be the case that a lot of these studies were psychology professors would gather up some students and give them these mock juror examples. And I really didn't have the confidence that I could do that. But you can now use this Mechanical Turk marketplace, which is an Amazon product. And so basically it exists out there 
on the internet for anyone wanting a job to be done online. Restaurants will use it to have someone evaluate their menu or things like that. And, and so they'll give out tasks to this amorphous marketplace that has thousands of people in it. Social scientists have been using the marketplace to put out social science experiments. What they found, they've even kind of studied how does using the marketplace compare to the old way of doing these studies, which is gathering up research subjects typically on a college campus. And the marketplace actually does pretty well in terms of study subjects. You know, it's not perfect and it's not exactly the same, obviously, as if I went and gathered up jurors and had a real trial setting and things like that. But you can actually do studies like the ones that I've been talking about. You can do them using the marketplace and you just put out a task and I gave it to 400 people. I gave four different variations of the same fact pattern, except with slight variations. So in one fact pattern, the defendant doesn't testify. In another one, the defendant testifies and is impeached with a certain kind of conviction. In another one, the defendant testifies and is impeached with a different conviction. And in the last one, the defendant doesn't testify at all. Basically, one he testifies and, and the other one he doesn't testify. And in both, no prior convictions come in. Just looked at the 100 in each group, what was the conviction percentage across the groups? And it broke down pretty much the way the social science studies would predict, with the most interesting finding being that the prior conviction penalty and the silence penalty matched up pretty well, or roughly equivalent in weight. So basically, it doesn't matter whether you testify or not. The jury is going to hold you to either the perceived conviction or the conviction that you actually have. Yeah, it's really interesting. So obviously, it's just one study with all the caveats that comes with that. But what it suggests is that both of these penalties, the prior conviction penalty and the silence penalty, are substantial. And they, in my study, they hit the defendant pretty equally. So the defendant that didn't testify at all, the conviction percentage there was about the same as the defendant who testified and was impeached with the convictions. On the other hand, the defendant who did testify, and in all the examples, when the defendant testifies, it doesn't say anything new. He just says, the fact pattern said, the defendant testifies consistently with an alibi witness, and the alibi witness is the same in all the scenarios. And that defendant, the defendant who just, who the mock jurors are told that the defendant testifies consistently with the alibi witness, that defendant had a much better success rate in terms of acquittals than any of the other defendants. Now, being someone who loves empirical work on evidence rules, I frankly would have been quite content with your interesting new findings. But the second half of your article uses those results to explain what you describe as a paradox in a prior study by the National Center for State Courts. So for those in the audience who are not familiar with this paradox, can you give us a quick summary of what that is? The one thing that, that we really would look at, right, there's a lot of criticisms you can make of the studies I've been talking about, which are mock juror simulations, and obviously that's not the same as a real trial. So what we really would like to look at, or at least look at in addition to what I've been talking about, is, well, what happens in real trials? And again, now it's really hard to figure out what's going on in real trials with respect to a certain variable, because there's so much variation between each trial. But there is this one study that the National Center for State Courts did and they were actually looking at, at why juries hang. But in that study, they asked whether the defendant's prior convictions were revealed, whether the defendant testified, and they had results as to whether there were convictions. And it was a study in multiple jurisdictions of state courts using felonies. And so it was a really kind of robust way to look at the question that I've been talking about. 
And from that study, you could see that defendants who had a prior record were being convicted much more frequently than defendants who did not have a prior record. And the paradox that you referred to is, but they were being convicted at this higher percentage, whether or not the jury was told of their convictions. So it was clear that defendants with prior convictions were being convicted more often, but it didn't appear that that was because the jury was being told about their prior convictions. And so that was the paradox that I, I tried to take on. Bring this all around with your results. <laughs> so how do your results here help us understand that study? Great. So the idea that the other studies were pushing, especially with my study, was that, well, if you look at either of the penalties in isolation, you're not getting the full picture. To really understand what's going on in American criminal trials, you have to see how the two penalties work in parallel. And so what my studies suggest, and just like you suggested earlier, is that either way, the defendant is getting hit with a penalty. So the defendant with a prior conviction either testifies and the jury hears about the prior conviction and their conviction percentage goes up, where they don't testify, the jury is suspicious of their silence and the conviction percentage goes up. And notice that that explains the paradox. That way, the criminal convictions are hurting the defendants when they testify because the jury hears about them and assesses a prior conviction penalty. But the prior convictions are also hurting the defendants by causing them not to testify, in which case the jury is suspicious of their silence and hits them with the silence penalty. And so that would explain why defendants with prior convictions are having worse conviction percentages than their uh, counterparts without prior convictions, even if the jurors are not told about their prior convictions. And the really kind of neat piece about the National Center for State Courts study was that they also tried to assess the evidentiary strength, because one thing you could say is, well, maybe the, there's something different about the evidence in these cases. And the National Center for State Courts didn't find a, any significant difference between the cases in which defendants testified and the cases in which defendants did not testify based on evidentiary strength. So the evidentiary strength didn't explain whether a defendant would testify or not. So and that suggests that there is something else going on, not the evidence that's pushing this finding, but something to do with what I propose is the two penalties. But as you can see, it gets very complicated. So that's why, although the podcast is essential to a good life, you should also read the paper if you're interested in this topic. Let's talk a little bit about real world implications here. Based on your study's results and the literature as a whole, what would be your recommendation for criminal defense attorneys? Is the current practice of discouraging defendant testimony misinformed and that these defendants really should testify? Or is there more nuanced advice that you want to give? The way I frame it in the paper is that I would suggest that defense counsel start with a presumption that the defendant should testify. And then obviously every case is different and the defense counsel is going to have to assess, is there something about this case and this defendant that overcomes that presumption? But the data is pretty clean on the point that if you testify and aren't impeached with prior convictions, you just have a much better chance of winning than in, in other cases, right? So then one of the examples of things that would cause you to not put your client on the stand is the prior conviction. But this also suggests that it shouldn't be automatic. You should assess, well, how much damage is this conviction going to do? Is there any way I can keep the conviction out? And what do I get from the defendant testifying? And it, it just complicates the question because it shows that if you go with the easy answer, and I think the traditional answer of keep your client off the stand you're going to get hammered for that, even though the judge will give an instruction that they shouldn't consider that. 
And so I think it does at least complicates the question and pushes defense counsel to really think about whether their client should testify. And the interesting thing is there is writing out there that supports this from very experienced defense attorneys. And I have excerpt from Barbara Babcock, who was one of my great professors at Stanford, who talks about how you really need to put your client on the stand if you're going to have a chance to win a case. And obviously that's, that's a generalization, but this study supports that. That's the trial practice piece. Now let me ask the broader policy question. Should the law change to address this problem? For example, Many people, including Julia Simon Kerr, who was on the podcast last season, Julia and these folks think that Rule 609 should be reformed. Or, as you recognize in the introduction to your piece, historically, defendants were barred from testifying at all. So that's a potential solution as well to say defendants can't testify. Are these potential solutions to the problem that you see, and should we be looking for a solution? The cleanest answer to the problem that I argue about in this paper is to eliminate the rule that allows you to impeach defendants with prior convictions. If you make that go away, then you get rid of one half of the penalty, and then the defendants can just make a decision about whether they're going to testify or not. That's not complicated by this weird coincidence in American evidence law that says, well, if you want to testify, now think about the damage that's going to be done when your prior convictions come in. And the other interesting piece about this that I didn't really fully realized till I got into the research here is it looks like, and this has changed over time, but it looks like the majority of defendants going to trial now have prior convictions. And so this is a dilemma that's coming up all the time in American criminal trials. And it just doesn't make any sense to tie the defendant's decision of whether to testify to the introduction of their prior record. It really wouldn't be a system that anyone would create from scratch. We've just kind of gotten there. And so obviously one way to deal with that, and then I've argued this in the past, is we get rid of the rule that allows impeachment with prior convictions for criminal defendants. And as you said, uh, others have argued, Anna Roberts is arguing this, I think, well, now Montre Carradine, and a lot of people have argued over the, the years. The problem is it kind of hasn't gotten any traction. If you're not going to do that, the next thing to do is we should go back to how it was, and that's not have the defendant be allowed to testify. Then you're getting rid of the other penalty. You wouldn't be able to hold it against the defendant that they didn't testify if they're not allowed to testify. And that's how it was for hundreds of years. And it's just where we are. And that obviously seems striking as a solution. But where we are now, where the majority of defendants are getting hit either with the silence penalty or the prior conviction penalty, isn't making sense at all. It's really a burden on criminal defendants, regardless of whether they're guilty or innocent, and necessitates something, even if it's something drastic. The final standard question for all our guests. Where should research in this area go in the future? If we had a new scholar who wanted to get involved with these issues, are there more empirical studies that you'd like to see done? Or is there a next step for substantive reform? Yes, I really think the answer, I mean, if we're going to get movement along these lines, is empirical work. I think that people understand the arguments against this kind of normative arguments, and, and it hasn't really moved the ball. And so the next piece is to uh, really push on empirical data to show it's not just that I think there shouldn't be this kind of rule, but look at what this rule is doing. And I talk about in the piece that it, it's pushing people to guilty pleas. It's having these perverse effects on even innocent defendants not testifying. Where could you go empirically? There's interesting experiments that are available in that there are a couple states that do not allow prior convictions, so really 
small states like Montana, Hawaii, and West Virginia. And then there's a couple other states that really limit prior convictions. I also think there's jurisdictions and judges who are really strict on allowing in prior convictions. And I would like to see someone look at in these states where prior convictions are not allowed as impeachment of criminal defendants, say Hawaii, is there in fact a lot of defendants testifying or more defendants testifying? Are there fewer DNA uh, exonerations, things like that? I think you could really find some interesting pieces to this natural experiment that's going on where there are a few jurisdictions that don't have prior convictions coming in as impeachment. And how is trial practice different in those states? Well, Jeff, so delighted to finally have you on Excited Utterance and to share your new piece on the silence penalty. Thanks a lot for taking the time to be on the show. Great. Thank you, Ed. There's so much to like in Jeff's new article. For one, it provides new empirical data on how evidentiary rules operate, something that we can always use. The results accomplish several things. First, Jeff's data reconfirms that juries are not following instructions about the right to remain silent and that they're unable to meaningfully distinguish between using convictions for impeachment purposes and using convictions for general propensity. Second, and perhaps more interesting, the results give us some insight into the inferences that juries make. Juries behave as if silent defendants had a prior conviction. It's almost as if juries intuit the way that the game is played. If the defendant is squeaky clean, then of course he'll testify. If the defendant has priors, then the defendant won't. But because juries understand the incentive structure, they're able to make inferences that thwart the right to remain silent. Another notable feature of Jeff's article is that it doesn't just stop at the empirical findings. It takes the results and uses them to push on several broader fronts. It explains the National Center for State Courts paradox, contributing to that academic conversation. It provides empirically-based advice to defense attorneys. And all the while, the paper furthers what might be termed the anti-609 movement, which has already been featured on several episodes of this podcast. I'm starting to sense a real tipping point on Rule 609, at least in the academic literature. The question is whether the political environment is ready for it. That does it for this week's episode of Excited Utterance. Support for Excited Utterance was generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brand Center Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The associate producers for this episode were Alex Nunn and Margot Wilkinson-Smith, and the production editor was Carson Smith. Additional production assistance was provided by Aaron Parr Carranza, and music was provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir, under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next week when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. Thank you.